The following production is part of the We Be Geeks Podcast Collective. Produced with podcasting gear from Tascam, including the Tascam Mini Studio. Trust your audio to Tascam. Sound thinking. Microphones and headphones provided by CAD Audio. CAD Audio, expression through innovation. Forgive the interruption, but I believe this requires your attention. Meanwhile, at the above-ground underwater suborbital volcano lair... This is urgent. We need a response team. We're already putting together the best move. With all due respect, sir, so am I. I have a plan. It's real! Mighty Marvel Geeks. That's what we call ourselves. Sort of like a team. Team? No, no, no. We're a chemical mixture that makes chaos. We're, we're a time bomb. Well then, son, you've got a condition. Your show about all things Marvel with Mike, Kylan, and Eric. What a bunch of losers. I am crew. That I did know. These people may be isolated and unbalanced even, but I believe with the right push, it can be exactly what you need. I'm suit up. I'm bringing the party to you. I have indeed been uploaded, gentlemen, online and ready. And welcome to another edition of Mighty Marvel Geeks. It's another issue because we have issues here. Uh, it is the Intrepid Trio, Kylan, Eric, and myself, Mike. And joining us... You're not authorized to access this area. Oh, no, 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 Thursday. They have clearance because these guys are related to the cast and the director, Oli, that we interviewed back in December of 2018. We have Marty Sykes, or Marty Langford and Mark Sykes of Doomed, the untold story of Roger Corman's Fantastic Four. How is everyone doing tonight? Very well. Uh very, very well. Nice to meet you guys. How are you? Nice to see you again or talk to you again, we should say. Good yeah. to be here. So tell us a little bit about Doomed, the untold story. Or we'll just shorten it for the night to Doomed. Yeah. Mark, you want to take this, Mark? Or you want me to do it? I can start us off. Um, there you go. We told this story a few times. Um <laughs> Marty called me up back in 2012 and said, I want to write a book about Roger Corman's a produced but abandoned live action version of the Fantastic Four. He knew I had worked as a casting assistant on the film back in uh, 92. And uh, I said, yeah, he said, well, you can write the chapter on the casting of the film. I said, okay, and it sort of fell by the wayside. And then a year later, we caught up again, and I had thought about it, and I said, Marty, let's make a movie. You went to film school. I went to film school. Why are we writing a book? Let's make a documentary. And it took me about three seconds to sell him on that idea. He was in love with it. We both loved it. And uh, so we started. He flew out to L.A., where I am, and uh, we talked about how we do this. How do you make, We neither one of us had ever made a documentary. And we sat down for three or four days in my living room and hashed out a plan, talked about a very preliminary budget, how to raise money via Kickstarter or Indiegogo. And the next thing you know, we have a Facebook page. We've started to get some fans. 
raise a little money. Uh, we did not raise the money we needed, but it turned out we could make a documentary for the money we raised. So that summer, we shot the movie and we shot the interviews. That, uh, that sum it up, Marty? Yeah, more or less. Absolutely. That was about the timing of it. Yeah. And, and during that campaign raising, you guys appeared on a, another podcast called Be Geeks. Yeah, that sounds awful familiar. I remember that too. Yeah, you yeah. were one of uh, you were one of the really early, I think, people that reached out to us. We got some kind of steam after, um, gosh, we had shot and we had started getting doing a little bit of press, and yeah. um, then Josh Trank had announced that he was going to do, uh, you know, the big version of uh, a big budget Fantastic Four. So when that started kind of developing, interest started gaining on you know older versions of the fantastic four and corman's movie started coming into the conversation and then word got out that these two guys were making a documentary about it and then we got very popular for a short amount of time but you were one of the early ones you were the early supporters that really did kind of get that initial press and we always appreciated it yeah that was so helpful back then well i'll, I'll be honest i reached out to you guys after i heard y'all with uh jonathan over on geekscape yes sir so oh is that uh jonathan london was that yep. the one yep oh that's right too yeah we uh yep. when we we ended up premiering at the uh what was it 2015 i think san diego comic-con and uh did we do a live podcast with him then mark no but he basically opened up his booth to us there you go just gave us a base yep. camp at comic-con we were screening and he just let us use his booth as a sort of a beachhead it was so helpful yeah i, I remember y'all being on his show uh yeah. early 2013 with yep. some of the cast uh oh absolutely yeah and I'm like okay let me let me try and get you guys on on uh we be geeks because we hadn't started started this show yet because we didn't start this show till that october right so uh we were just the one show yeah and we were so desperate for any breadcrumb of publicity and notoriety we had no money we could barely afford to shoot the darn thing so we were hoping somehow to crack through and so we were doing i did a podcast in somebody's um dining room in west la oh wow just because i you know i wanted you never knew you know somebody could be listening that would come in and champion the documentary we knew we had a good story we knew people would be interested it was always a question of reaching an audience so that people knew we were even doing this yeah, and Mark, uh, Mark makes a good point because so often throughout, you know, the, the goodness three years we were actively making the movie, we would hear from somebody and they would say, you know, I heard your podcast on Weeby Geeks or I heard uh, you with Jonathan London. And it was that kind of one connection that brought about these larger, uh, yeah. you know, people and these larger stories. And before we knew it, you know, we were, Mark, do you remember that when like we were doing uh, Wall Street Journal and uh, oh, Variety and Hollywood Reporter and News? week and Esquire. It was oh. crazy. We would sit there when, at the height of it. I remember sitting in front of my computer with the, the trailer, the, the the trailer we had cut for uh, for the documentary. And guys, it was going up by like six, eight, ten thousand views an hour. We would just sit there and it was just tens of thousands of views. Yeah, oh, my Yahoo, goodness. Yahoo News picked us up 
and it was some headline like the worst movie you've ever seen or it was a dreadful headline and it, and it really was a kick in, yeah. in a way you know like, <laughs> hey, I'm making a film about a horrible movie yay yeah. um, but, uh, but before, all, before all that happened yeah. uh, Mark's right yeah we were just trying to do anything we could Oh yeah, I would have. I I would have done a podcast in somebody's basement. I don't care. Well, who? What are we? Who are we? I know. Well, it was definitely an honor then to have you guys on, and and now find out we're part of the ground floor. Really hoping y'all get steam going because I I know I even contributed to the Indiegogo uh, when yeah. you did it. Um, I, at the time I was not able to submit enough to get a copy of the film, but Hey, I could watch it on Amazon prime at the moment. So I'm happy for that. You were one of the grassroots. Yeah. Oh, and it's, you know, it's funny. Um, we, I, I still uh, it was for a very, copy. you don't have, oh, gee, well, after this, send me an email. Well, well, now. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, we were, uh, you know, because occasionally we'll get these little bursts of like attention. And a couple of weeks ago, um, do you guys know Mr. Sunday Movies, the YouTuber? No. Yeah, he's just some big YouTube guy. I mean, I've never really, my son knows him, but he had done a, uh, a YouTube show and he has like, you know, 1.4 million subscribers or something. And he did one on Corman's movie and he mentioned us. And we, you know, I got a Google alert and then we started seeing all this activity on our account and uh, we trended on Amazon Prime. I was oh on Amazon God. Prime. Yeah, we, we didn't were, trend when we first released. I know. Trend. And I turned it on and it said trending now. And we were like, you know, when you see you go to the right, like you press the button to go to the right. We were like the next one on the second oh, wow. screen. Oh, it wow. was so cool. So, wow. so what made you guys decide Roger Corman's Fantastic Four? And I'm going to say the real Fantastic Four. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I think it was, uh, I mean, I love and I've always loved, and I think probably the five of us have always loved uh, comic books, right? Yep. And I had this just weird, even like in the early, early days, I had this weird fascination with like, I loved seeing live action versions of them. And you know what? It's probably not that unique. It was, but we all shared that love. And I would try to get my hands on like, you guys remember like when Power Pack had a TV pilot that never aired back in the yep. 80s? And, uh, you know, there were all of these, there's weird, you know, the Justice League pilot on CBS. Yes. Um, And, you know, Fantastic Four was one of those, you know, we would only be able to get these, uh, you know, bootlegs at conventions and comic book shows and stuff. And since you you mentioned the Justice League, we've got to mention, too, that uh, uh, was a League of Superheroes where they start off with Ed McMahon roasting. Oh, no, 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 not that one. Yeah. Oh, no, I I know the other one as well. I'm like, we got to add that one to the list, too. The two-hour CBS special that was horrible. (laughs) I have both. I have both of those on. uh, I've got still got my gray market VHS tapes, but um, what do you call it? Uh, Was it Warner Archives? It's Warner Brothers, right? Is that who owns it? Yeah. Yeah, they have like a uh, MO called like manufacturer on demand line for a bunch of movies that aren't quite big enough to release to mass market. And they actually have that old justice league show. You can like buy it of the legend of the superheroes. That's so cool. And the quality is like perfect. It's beautiful. (laughs) Yeah. So before I interrupted, uh, you were, you were talking about why. Oh, right. right, Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it was, I think the, the touchstone for me with like when my interest was the highest was when that, uh, film threat article came out with that cover. 
it was like, you know, such everybody who knows that uh, magazine, Film Threat, knows yeah. that cover of the magazine. And yeah. um, and I had always had it just sitting around. And, um, you know, it was just something that I'd always been interested in. Like, you know, why didn't this movie ever get released? Watch the story. So, you know, Mark was on the thing. So it just seemed like a natural connection with him being my very good friend. And um, But I want to I mean, point out that Marty, back in the 90s, was the man who first got me a copy of the movie. I mean, when Marvel came to Corman's offices, they confiscated everything. We never saw an official copy. Uh, there were no VHS, DVDs, or anything made available to anybody illegal- legally. And ye- a few years later, Marty sends me in the mail a VHS bootleg of the Fantastic Four, which, honestly, I didn't even know existed. He got it at a comic show. And that's so weird, too, because you were like, because you were Corbin's projectionist, too, weren't you? Yeah, I mean, I saw the movie because I was his projectionist. So when Roger saw it, I saw it. But I never saw a finished version, don't forget. That thing went in some editing room for like two or three months with Oli, and then it just disappeared. And that's uh, that's not long after Marvel came in and basically said, give us all the movie posters, give us all the slides, give us every copy of the film or any any editing copies. Um, So it all just disappeared overnight. (laughs) Wow. So what I get, we kind of asked this to the cast. They they had their theories. They had their thoughts and speculations. Were you guys ever able to find out? Um, I'll ask this in two parts. So I'll ask the first part first. Why they went through, made the entire film, had it ready to ship out, and then two weeks before distribution, I believe it was two weeks, pull the plug. Yeah, well, I mean, we explain, I think, most of it in the doc, but there are there is that kind of question, and I think Rebecca asks it. She's like, if the reason they made this movie was to fulfill, you know, the obligation of starting production before the end of a calendar year so they could retain the option and make future movies, if that was all they needed to do, then why go through the bother of making an entire movie, you know, uh, a month-long process with production and, you know, three months before that and a year after that, why not just roll the cameras if that's what they have to do, start production on a movie and then just stop. They fulfilled the obligation. They can make future movies. Why bother making the whole thing? And, um, you know, uh, there's lots of theories out there and we address, you know, those as well as the facts, I think, in the doc. But there's a lot of holes in most of the theories that I've seen posited, even by the cast. And I believe you have to remember this was a fluid situation. There were no guarantees. Yes, Bernd Eichinger at Constantine had to go into production by December 30th, 1992. So that is a fact. That's solid. I believe, with my dying breath, I will always believe this based on every fact I've seen and my own gut. And you kind of were there during pretty much no, the entire there, production. But, but honestly, <laughs> so you, it's, a good, I, it's a good educated guess no, that's coming I, from. I think my education comes from the work we did on the documentary, watch, sitting in on every one of those interviews, um, the Los Angeles Magazine interview with... Um, Robert Ito. Yeah, that Robert was our... Yeah, I, 
I don't, let me tell you something. I was low man on the totem pole in 92. I got to be in the movie. That was exciting. I got to be the casting assistant. Exciting. I got to be on set. So I loved all that. But I, I mean, I think Chris Gore at Film Threat probably would have more great information about 1992. But in listening to all the actors, listening to Oli, interviewing Roger, and then just basically having a, a sense, knowing Roger and knowing how he does business, I don't believe Roger Corman produced that movie just for the rights, and I don't think he was paid just to produce the movie for the rights. I think there was a fluid agreement, it, it, and if or, that if Marvel wanted to buy the movie up, they probably had the option to do it, or they would accept a big amount of money. But I also think no way was Roger Corman under any obligation to make movie posters, pins, right. slides. Roger doesn't waste a penny. Read anybody's behind-the-scenes, no-holds-barred, honest interview, and, and the truth of Roger, take away all Roger's charm and be <laughs> I respect Roger immensely, but he's uh, pardon me, he's a, he's a liar and a con man. <laughs> but that's part of the show, guys. I mean, that's yeah. Roger. I love Roger, but he's the biggest liar I ever met. He's always on. I've seen him in interviews and I've listened and I'm like, oh my god, that's a lie. Yeah, that's a lie. <laughs> nope, that didn't happen. I mean, and that's okay. He's a producer and he's doing a show. But Roger wouldn't have spent a penny sending the cast to L.A. Comic Con, pick, making up some pictures for them to sign, um, pins, posters, publicity materials. That movie was going to come out. 100% guarantee if Marvel didn't step in and say, we're buying it up, you're not putting it out, that movie would have come out on home video, they would have made money, everybody would have been happy, they kept their option. Anyone who says that movie was never meant to release has to prove it to me. Has to give me some testimony that says they made this movie but never planned to release it. They may never have hoped to release it, but then again, listening to Oli in the cast now, those people were believers. They thought this movie was coming out. Alex Hyde White thought this movie was going to change his life. The whole cast thought it was going to be breakthrough. I know what those cast members were paid. We didn't really discuss this. But Jay Underwood was making good money when he did this movie. Everyone involved thought that movie was going to get a theatrical release. That may or may not have been the case. But it was definitely going to come out on home video. I mean, we had just made Carnosaur, you know, Roger's version of Jurassic Park. Yeah. And, Jurassic, and it was one of the most profitable movies they made. If Roger had released Fantastic Four in Roger Corman language, he would have made a fortune. Wow. So yeah. I don't believe for a minute it wasn't ever going to come out. Now, you, you say it's Marvel that took, um, came in and bought everything up. And I believe when we had Ollie in the cast on, they were saying it was the studio heads at Fox that were doing it. Well, they would have gone 
they wanted to do a Chris Columbus version of Fantastic Four, and they didn't want this one out there because in 1993, they didn't realize it was going to be another 10 years before they got serious about a live action version. I think they were thinking we're going to make a version in 95. We're going to get Chris Columbus. We're going to get a viable script and director attached. We don't want this movie just two years ago still sitting on video short store shelves at Blockbuster and people thinking this is the level of movie we're going to make because we've all seen the movie. You know, you wouldn't want to release that in 2000 theaters. It's a it's a very loyal, uh, sweet version of the of the, you know, property. But, it you know, it wouldn't be something Chris Columbus would probably want to put his name on. Right. Uh, I, like we have said here uh, and even mentioned off and on during our interview back in 2018 with the with the crew we feel personally this is the the real fantastic four because it is the closest to how the family should be portrayed to the comics since that's kind of the push that they are doing yeah and all you have to do is go back and read one through ten of fantastic four and look at the material look at the characters look at the way they're written you can see that craig nevius was really influenced by um the early fantastic four the sweet wholesome family fantastic four um and that shines through in only corman's version mm-hmm you don't have Jessica Alba getting her clothes ripped off or uh, appearing invisible and then naked in traffic. You don't have uh, just, you know, Galactus as some cloud. cloud. <laughs> it, it's like these people never read the comic book who made those other three films. And whenever you see like in magazines or on websites, when they have these, um, you know, these lists and they'll say like, uh, you know, who's the best version of Dr. Doom or who's the best version of the thing. Corman's movie is usually like the number one or the number two for both of those characters. Oh, yeah. And people adore them if, if for nothing else, if for not even the performance uh, for at least the look. If you were yeah. to take a photograph of, of Carl Chirfalio in the thing outfit and Joseph Culp in the Doctor Doom costume and then look at them compared to uh, Jesus Mark, who were they? Uh, the guy from Nip Tuck. He was Doom, right? Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. Was his name? Him and then Michael Chiklis and then uh, who, whomever else played the, the characters. Everybody yeah. loves Joseph and everybody loves uh, Carl and Michael as the thing. Yeah, and it's not a slam on those actors. They're fantastic act. Michael Chiklis is great. Oh, yeah, of course. But, you know, um, you look at what Corman and um, Optic Nerve and Everett Burrell and our buddy John Vulich were able to accomplish for a million dollars compared to what the studios accomplished on their huge budgets. And it's embarrassing. And the script, ah. We won't won't talk about that one that came out in... 2015. Oh, 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 goodness. I can't. No. no. Although it was good for Doomed because it gave us a bug. I think we were the only people that benefited from it. (laughs) You know, but that is a, it is, I mean, remember too, when that was in production, uh, the Fantastic Four movie was when, you know, we were kind of in production too. So when all of these production woke stories about Trank's movie were coming out, um, every single article, like I mentioned earlier, would mention our movie. So yeah, we can't thank Trank enough. And I mean, that, I I actually saw that uh, recently, the, the Joss Trank version. 
and not the yeah. movie, but I saw a YouTube video where somebody yeah. broke it down and walked through it and said, you know, what worked with it, what didn't work with it. And there's a lot of interesting stuff in that movie in the in the Trank one. But yeah. holy moly, it didn't end up in uh, in the release cut. No. Well, I, you know, I, I, I got to see uh, Corman's Fantastic Four because of my comic shop. <laughs> my, my, uh, my comic guy said, hey, he said, did you ever see Corman's Fantastic Four? I was like, you know, I, I would see it at, you know, at uh, conventions and you no know, comic book shows. But no, and I've, I've never actually seen it. He said, here. And he said, I'll let you borrow it. So, you know, I watched it. And... You know, I, I I mean, like like Mike and Eric, to me, that is the real Fantastic Four. You know, I, I mean, even the way the powers were explained and the the way that it seemed like the characters, it seemed like the actors, it seemed like everybody just really had the love for what they were doing. And it seemed like the movies that came after, it, it was almost like they, they were winking at the screen, like they weren't really into it. And so I, I, I hate that this movie never got released. I mean, on one side, I understand why from the Hollywood sense of it, I guess. But the thing is just that, I, that movie has a special place in my heart. It really does because I Fantastic Four is one of the first comics I read. Uh, and to, for it to be one of the first movies, first Marvel movies I got to see on, you know, as a, you know, portrayed on the uh, small screen, I guess. But still, I, you guys, I don't know. It's just, I, I hate that that movie didn't get the love that I feel like it deserved. Yeah. I was, I'm going to just jump in here with that for a second. I, if you think back to when we had the cast on the show, mm-hmm. all right, think back to how long ago they filmed that movie. Yeah. Me too. And they still care more about their movie, even all these years past, than anybody who has made any of the more recent ones. I will fight you on that. Yeah, you're right. If you were to interview a Michael Chiklis or the Nip Tuck guy, you're right. It's like a footnote in their career. It's one role. It was years ago. They've had plenty since. Uh, you, yeah, they they no, don't have the affection for the characters that no, I'm sure you guys. No, their eyes that they were even involved in the franchise. Julia McMahon. That was his name. That's his name. Yes. Yeah, Yeah, and he's great, but the script was insane. It was no. I, I yeah I, you know and I still I still go back to seeing that seeing the cast together and even all those years later like what so that was December 2018 so, so we're, we're talking yeah. uh so we're talking 20, like 26 years or something yeah, yeah. 26 years later and they still have that love. And they were st- so excited that people are seeking that movie out and people still are excited to talk about that. Well, I, I thought know, it was funny. It was Alex, because, uh, of course, we recorded them, uh, recorded the show over Skype like we're doing tonight. And mm-hmm. Alex just kept screenshotting using the screenshot <laughs> option on Skype. Off and yes. on the whole night. Oh, so you guys had all the video cameras on. Yeah. yeah. So you must have just loved being in that group again. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yes. And it was amazing. And then Oli was in some bar in New Orleans. <laughs> yes. And um, getting his vodka on. Yeah. <laughs> uh, which, was, which was great. And uh, thankfully, that was a show that um, 
was aired during the time where Sorcerer Radio um, that oh, and trying to get better about plugging Sorcerer Radio more during during our shows um, uh, was on on holiday break. So Marvel had that line of a that adult line of comics called Marvel Max. So that was our one and only Mighty Marvel Geeks Max episode that we've had. It was so worth it, though. But it, oh. <laughs> it's like we we barely ask a question. And then, as you guys heard, they just took off for like 10, 15 minutes. It's like, yeah. okay, so, well, there goes that question we were going to ask, and there goes that question. Yeah. Some of my fondest memories of, of the actual production of the movie was like before and after the interview. Sometimes we would have two of them in a day, and maybe on one occasion we might have had three of them in a day. But there would be crossover, so we'd be interviewing uh, Michael Bailey Smith, and at the end of his interview, Oli would come in because, you know, we had to – and they would just be so happy to see each other, you know. Yeah. And uh, and they just – they did. They reconnected. And you could tell that the making of this movie was just kind of something special for them. Oh, yeah. Um, we were we were delayed starting to record by, what, five, ten minutes because all of them are doing a quick, hey, so how's it going? How's the family? What you doing now? What's it? I was like, then right. Joseph would just stop and go, okay, we're ready to record. Just let us know when. But do you want a super secret uh, little piece of trivia? Of course we do. I got a super secret piece of trivia that didn't get covered in the documentary. Do I know this, Mark? Yeah, you're not going to want me to talk about it. But... Oh, boy. <laughs> this is a Mighty Marvel Geeks exclusive. It really is, because we, we don't, you know, we don't want to stir things up. But we were trying to shoot a, a director cast audio commentary track during our shooting of the documentary and all the interviews. Marty and I were trying to schedule an afternoon for maybe two or three hours where we got Oli and the entire cast to come and sit with us, put on microphones, watch the movie and do this amazing fan-centric, wonderful audio commentary of this film. And mm, where, where are you going with this story, Mark? I think I know where you're going with it. I'm, oh. I'm surprised you're, I'm very surprised you're telling it. Well, I'm not going to mention names because I'm not sure we knew. Okay. But we were told by a couple of the cast members while we're trying to put this together, it'll never happen. And they didn't want to say why. But we could piece together that while it's a family and everybody loves coming together, there are still some 25-year-old issues between people involved who would not have wanted to sit down with other people involved and do the commentary for us. We were told explicitly by one person that will never happen. I, I Mark, wow. I remember sitting out in your sitting out in the front of your house in LA, yep. smoking smoking my cigarettes with my spreadsheet in front of me, trying to figure out all the times and the logistics to where, you know, when we had the studio for this time, we had the DP here, we had the light here, this person yep. would come in there. And I remember trying to schedule that commentary track because yeah. that's all of them. We had it. And they're flying in, you know, Oli's flying in from L.A., Jay's no, flying no, in from Northern California. And I, I mean, I was convinced it was 
going to happen. And no, people were leading to me believe it was going to happen. And then but we started hearing. I know, I know. <laughs> it didn't. Ultimately, one or two people had conflict. Couldn't. I mean, here's this group of people that love each other. And I think to some degree they do. And here we are, documentary filmmakers trying to tell this story. And some of them were 100% on board. I'm not going to mention names. But there was one or two people who were a little cagey about fully committing to oh yeah down and doing the audio commentary and you could tell that there was some other either grudge or agenda or concern um and it broke my heart only in that in instead of just having an Oli Sassoon audio commentary that we have to put with Fantastic Four we would have had the whole cast oh wow uh, that, that was my dream now do you think it was because it was an issue with the gr- a, a grudge with the film itself because it was never released or no. it was with the no that's, cast members? that's not that yeah that's not what he's talking about no nope. <laughs> it was people not liking people or holding a grudge or being afraid some other uh, cast member was going to say something once it was official and sit there and have to listen um i visited the set a bunch of times when they were shooting this movie mm-hmm. uh Marty and I chose to take the high road with the documentary. There were there were issues right on the set, and we didn't we weren't looking to do some you know dirty laundry right. kind of a documentary expose on you know one of the cast members that you know what's going on with the mole man. No, we weren't we weren't <laughs> trying to be jerks. But there was stuff going on, and nobody really talked about it during the interviews, which was fine, because, again, that wasn't the documentary we were making, but it was really interesting to us. Uh, And I remember writing about it. Um, I I think there was and is issues. I I mean, I think they're more or less put to sleep now. It's not like somebody's going to go teepee somebody's house in the middle of the night years later. (laughs) But I do think there was some reticence to go on the record in the company of at least one other cast member. Um, And I don't know what, I I honestly don't know exactly what the issue was, but I do, I can tell you for a fact, there were issues in 92 and 93. Um, There were issues all through post-production among Corman and, and, and cast, because I think as time went on, the cast, especially Alex and maybe Joseph, they were a lot more involved in like, hey, what's going on with post-production and the ultimate release of the film? I think they got wind and a, and a sniff that something was up, either an unnecessary delay or the fear that this film might never come out. Um, but again, I don't think they had any confirmation. Right. And with those and two... Rem- and- and with those two, with the legacy that they have with their fathers and their family, yeah, they 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 would have had a heightened sense to that before the others, I would think. Well, I think Alex and Joseph certainly would have had the best radar for anything like that. I mean, you know, Jay was no newbie to Hollywood, but he was young. Um, I, you know, I don't believe his family was from Hollywood, so yeah, um, I I think those guys, Alex had a sense of. Of what he had to do. He was sort of the head guy on um, um, championing the film. He really did take on the role 
of Reed Richards. He really was kind of, you know, the team leader uh, of the cast. Um, he was the guy I remember sitting outside Steve Rabner's office at Roger Corman's place trying to figure out what was going on during post-production, why things were so slow, why we're not promoting this, send us, we're ready to do a PR, um, you know, junket, what's going on? Because I'm sure Alex and Joseph could sense, gee, for a movie that's getting a theatrical release, we're not checking any of the boxes, guys. Right. So, so in other words, you're saying when we had as many of the casts that we did, practically all but one person in the cast yeah. and all yep. We had something special that night. Absolutely. Yeah, because I'm sitting here listening to this and and I'm just kind of like, you know, I totally did not pick up on any no. kind of grudge no. issues well, or there anything. There was somebody missing. <laughs> oh, 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 man. Mark, is this why you asked me recently for all the raw footage? <laughs> oh, <laughs> to quote Did, Santa, oh, name. There, there's, there's a question to be asked after the show. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah, because this is the same thing we got the week we were finalizing this you know, amazing audio commentary, dream audio. It was a dream for Marty and I. I mean, I would have been okay if we never even shared it with anyone. I just wanted to hear them all talk about the movie. And I I tell you, um, I have a spider sense of my own. People were shifting and mercurial, and all of a sudden somebody wasn't available one day, and when we got another day locked in, somebody else wasn't available. It was a little suspicious, and I, you'll, you, you'll have to admit there's been almost no occurrences in the last 25 years where the entire cast has shown up. Wow. Well, I, I'm going to, again, go on record and say thank you to Joseph for pulling together who he was able to get together for yeah. that that interview that night that was that was joseph that pulled that together for us it was like a christmas miracle technically then that's the case yeah, because well <laughs> and, right. and the only reason why it came about is i had joseph on weeby geeks for another project he was involved with mm -hmm. and, and just mentioned to him hey i would love to have you and whoever else from the cast on this show to talk oh was that was that uh, yeah he was doing a movie wasn't he he did um it had the word house in the title i think the new house or a new house i love seeing these guys on facebook joseph and alex and michael you know and seeing their different projects that they work yeah, on you know man. and it's cool to see joseph you know doing press with you who we met you know doing uh, uh your year old show there that's so cool give me a second i'll tell wow. you what it was <laughs> joseph having the website uh, I, so uh, while we're waiting on that, I so so you guys. It was the, welcome to the men's group. Yeah. Oh yes, 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 yes. That's his film. He wrote, produced, and directed that. I believe. And it, yeah. It's a great film. Yeah. So you guys get this. You get the documentary, and 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 it's done. And and I get where, where do you is there do you feel like that you've you've told the story do you feel like there's still more to tell well there's um, it's funny it's a great question too and nobody's like asked that because yeah. uh, uh, there has been there have been like developments in our relationships with uh, the people who we interviewed and the people who we didn't interview 
uh, Mark mentioned Craig Nevius earlier, the screenwriter. Yeah. And um, we've become very friendly with him in the interim, but we weren't able to land him for an interview at the time. And he's told us all kinds of stories. And it was stuff where it's like, oh, Craig, dude, why? Why didn't you do the interview? And he's just like, I just didn't think I had anything to contribute back then, you know. And, and as I saw the success of your movie – I started to think, oh, you know, it's not that he was disappointed, but he was just he wanted to reach out and contact us. And Mm -hmm. um, as well as the production designer, a guy named Mick Strawn, who's done like all the, you know, a number of the Nightmare on Elm Street movies is a really big deal. He was the production designer. Uh, So Mick, we connected and it was another one of those. Oh, why didn't we have you then? You know? Um, we wish we got Everett Burrell. We talked to Everett, who did um, the effects with John Vulich, who passed away after the film came out, which was tragic and horrible. Uh, so Everett Burrell we've talked to, um, who uh, we would have loved to have on camera. There were just so many other people who we could have talked to, who we subsequently found out about or met after the release. And um, uh, there's just you know, there's a lot more story there, it's just a richer tapestry of, uh, of a narrative. Um, we should go back, Mark. We'll interview those guys and we'll put together a, a 30th anniversary uh, well, that's, edition. That's the thing. I mean, there there really was more story to be told. Um, we had reached out to Steve Rabner. I'm not really in contact with Steve anymore. And either A... He didn't want to talk to us, or B, it was just impossible to get a good contact for him. I don't know what. Um, I'd reached out to Laura Schiff, the head of casting. Obviously, we had Craig Nevius, and Craig dropped out at the last minute. We were already ready to interview Craig, and he just had second thoughts. You know, uh, he and I have talked about it since and made our peace, but this was an important thing, you know, and I felt we all also sort of owed it to the cast. And Oli, if we were going to do this, do it right. Be honest. Don't hold back. Mm-hmm. I, not again. We were looking to do a scathing expose on who was dating whom, but we wanted to be honest and we wanted to tell the story because you asked initially, did we tell the story and did we tell the whole story? And I'm going to sum that one up for you. Marty Langford and Mark Sykes told the story of Fantastic Four to the best degree possible with Bern Dykinger dead and Stan Lee not long, you know. I mean, Stan Lee could have been an interview subject in this film. Well, we had Stan Lee lined up, Mark. Remember, had, done for Comic-Con. I know, and he, there wasn't anything in it for Stan. I'm sorry. Um, I'm sorry he's passed on, but I don't romanticize this. Stan Lee does what's good for Stan Lee. He wouldn't come on to our pot. We offered to go to his office. We would have done anything we could have done to get him interviewed for this movie. And I was as irritated as um, Alex Hyde White is in, in the in the documentary about Stan Lee's handling of this film, both then and our documentary now. Um, I felt Stan owed this cast and this director and this crew a commentary. We couldn't have made it any easier for him. Um, I'm pretty sure that if we had dangled 20 grand in front of his face, he would have been in the documentary, but it was a documentary that couldn't afford him. And so Stan Lee isn't interviewed. Now, the good news is Stan Lee wasn't really that involved in the film, but it would have been a nice interview to have. Yeah, we, that's, we, that's primarily why we wanted it, because it was clear yeah. in talking to everybody else and knowing enough of the story that Stan's involvement wasn't a big contribution to the story we were telling. But to 
be able to say featuring Stan Lee, you know, that's what we wanted. Well, and right. I wanted him to go on record, you know, because yes, yes, yes. The cast, there was more than one cast member who felt betrayed by Stan Lee. Stan Lee visited the set. Stan Lee initially was gung-ho, Fantastic Four. And then once it became apparent, oh, my God, this is a really low-budget film, Stan Lee distance himself from this film as far as he could, which was his right to do, but we couldn't get Stan Lee. Clearly, we couldn't get Avi Arad. Um, we couldn't get Bernd Eichinger. So, I mean, I would have loved Craig Nevius. I think Craig could have given us a really good background on the development process because I wasn't involved in that. Right, because earlier, Mark, you were saying how if you look at uh, Fantastic Four's 1 through 10, you get a real sense of where uh, Craig was coming from with his draft. And, like, wouldn't you have loved to have discussed, like, was that a, you know, was that a directive? Did somebody say, look at the first 10 pages of the comic and adapt them? Or was it because of his love for the book and his memory of the characters? You know what I mean? How did the, well, how did, you know, yeah, the go through that process? Craig, without Craig, we're pretty much bereft of any development situation at all, except we had four copies of the screenplay. Play. So we knew the dates and the draft of the screenplay. We knew when the Mole Man became the jeweler. Uh, and I knew a little bit of that. But Craig was the expert. Craig knew everything. So, um, you know, he, he would later be interviewed uh, for a book called Forsaken. And so his story can be told. And there's a bunch of other interviews. But it, it's a shame it's not in the documentary. But the documentary, it tells the story of the cast, of Oli, of, in general, of the crew. And I believe we ultimately come up with the answer to the question, why was this movie made? Why was it never released? Um, who was responsible? Nobody, you know, nobody out there should be blaming Corman. Corman was a guy in this whole situation to make some money. That's the only thing on earth that motivates Roger Corman. He is not motivated out of nostalgia. He is not motivated out of... He couldn't give a crap about releasing a theatrical film. Mm -hmm. Roger had no love to release a theatrical film. He was one of the only producers I've ever worked with who literally, I think, avoided theatrical um, distribution except for like a day or two just to get a little more money out of distributors. So Roger, no. Oli, no. This was Marvel 100%. And we tried to reach uh, Constantine, too, would have been that Bernd Eichinger's company, uh, company in Germany, uh, to get some kind of comment out of them. And the only time, do you remember the only time we ever heard from Constantine, Mark? When they took us off YouTube? Yes. So the only time we ever heard from Constantine was, the, was when we, you know how I was telling you we were 10,000 views an hour. We're going up to, you know, 20,000 views, 60,000 views, 200,000 views. We got up to mm -hmm. 400, 464. 4,000 views. We were almost at half a million. And we went to bed that night and we woke up the next morning and the trailer Ooh. was down. The trailer was removed for copyright infringement from Constantine Films, who had filed a claim. And it turns out, and this was a big concern with Mark and I through the whole production of the movie, was how much of the movie can we use? How much of the soundtrack can we use in our documentary? We know fair use. We know the law, kind of. But at any point, Marvel could have stepped in or Constantine could have stepped in and said, you can't show clips. That's illegal. That that was acquired illegally. And, you know, we're going to shut you down. But they did take our trailer down because I didn't time shift or I rather I did time shift some music, the score that was uh, composed by James. 
James Horner, I had moved over a clip of one of the interview people talking. And since I had moved that away from the picture, yeah. the fair use doctrine didn't apply and they got us on that. So they took and then we never got our half million views. It was so heartbreaking. Yeah, it was just evil. But we did recut it. I did fix it. And then we pro- I think if we probably have another 60 or 80,000 views since then. So we're over half a million, but just not all at once. Yeah. Yeah. So, so this this movie, it seemed <laughs> seems like the only way we can really describe it is, is the redheaded stepchild of Marvel movies. Yes. I, and I there's mean, worse looking films in their archive than this one. Well, yeah. Yeah. I'll give you that. Again, we will. There, there is absolute crap out there we, we, in some of the early stuff. Oh, in the early stuff. Oh. Well, in the early stuff and a few of the not so early. Yeah. No, Marvel Universe stuff, too. There's some real garbage. Oh, I, I the first one that comes to my mind is the 1979 Doctor Strange. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that was horrible. It's like DC made that just to mess with the property. <laughs> oh. <laughs> How could Marvel that movie? That was Michael Bay. That was Michael Bay's first film. Are you saying they should release the Zack Snyder cut of the 1979 Doctor Strange? Oh, well, you know what? As bad as this is, as bad as this is, at least this does not involve somebody using a starfish as a shuriken, as they did in that in the Aquaman. The Aquaman, yes. Yeah, you saw that. That was one of those live action ones. When I was listing the Power Pack one earlier, I didn't say that one because I was like, oh, nobody will have ever seen that. Yeah, I've never seen seen the Power Pack one, but see, now my, my comic guy... He he hooked me up, and so he's he. In fact, he uh, let me borrow uh, like on one tape. It had the Justice League, and it had Aquaman, yeah. and then uh, then he gave, and then he uh, had the Corman Fantastic Four, and so you know he as and that and it felt like I will say this about the Corman movie. It felt like. They held on as much of the budget as they could for when Johnny finally could flame on. And I was like, okay, cool. I get it. You know, it was like, it was early 90s. Computer tech, you know, computer technology was, so I get it. But you still can say we never used a starfish as a shuriken. And yeah. I think that was, that, that's a moment to be proud of. I'm just yeah. saying. So it, you kind of touched on this already. But uh, overall, what has been the reaction from those involved in making the movie itself? And have you heard anything from, like, say, Marvel since? No, I mean, Marvel, if they were going to say anything, it would just be, you know, we're going to sue you or we're going to do something. Marvel has no I think Marvel took that attitude of like, it's a little film. It's a little documentary. Better to just say nothing. Leave them alone. They're not going to make any kind of a stir. And we're going to look like the bad guys if we go after a no budget documentary. Right. That it hasn't broken any laws, by the way. Um, So I just think that um, Marvel doesn't care about us. Um, we're beneath their notice. Avi Arad, I, I hope, is gone where the goblins go. And uh, so that's all over. Um, and the cast loves the documentary. They've been really good about coming out and, um, you know, supporting yeah, with, without exception, I think each of them and I changed my microphone, guys. I'm sorry. My phone was dying. Yeah, that's fine. Without, ex- without exception, um, 
each of the cast members really took it upon themselves to thank us. Um, Michael Bailey Smith is one of the most beautiful men I've ever met in my entire life. Just He's a, just a gentle soul, and he's a wonderful man. And he, especially, with um, appreciating what we did for them, I think, it was just it was a great feeling of kind of, you know, satisfaction of having done it and of having told, you know, their story as goofy and as, as maudlin as that sounds. It was... Now, if, um, if they had hated the documentary, I think we both would have cried. Yeah, yeah. No, I would have been yeah. devastated. Well, I, I do get the feeling that uh, it seems like that you you guys are sharing to share the same feeling uh, that Uli has towards uh, Avi Arad. <laughs> I, I, you know, I remember yeah. going off. <laughs> I can't say those words. Yes, yes. <laughs> um, the story, you know, that the kind of uh, the, the legend that had been told was like when you had asked why pull the movie two weeks before its release at the uh, screening at the malls of Amer- the Mall of America. Um, all of the Americas, Mall of Americas, whatever it's called. Um, it, you know, the story is that it's because Avi Arad found out about it while he was on vacation in Puerto Rico or something and was like, whoa, 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 I've got Chris Columbus to deal with at Fox. I need to keep him happy. I can't have this. So he made a phone call um, and with that phone call bought the negative, uh, which resulted in that incident Mark was talking about when Marvel came into Corman's, uh, studio or, or, uh, editing facilities and office space and just took everything out of there. You know, I don't believe that story for a second. No, of course. I mean, it's, and then of course the second half of the story, the second half of the story is Hollywood reporter. Yeah. The whole, that big cover making the movie. Yeah. And then the second half of that story is he took the negative after having bought it for $2 million and then burned it, you know? <laughs> also a lie. Yes. So that would have been illegal. What, what was the most shocking story for each of you that you got while making this documentary? Yeah. For me, it's easy. It's a super quick answer. And it was when uh, I was we were interviewing uh, Lloyd Kaufman in New York at Troma Studios. <laughs> and I we figured we wanted Lloyd because we wanted the perspective of another, uh, you know, uh, creative producer, you know, yeah. who has directed, who has made movies, but knew, now who runs a studio, small, albeit, but, you know, an independent studio. We wanted his perspective. So in talking to him, I was asking him, you know, questions that were leading to the answers I wanted. And all of a sudden it came to bear that he's like, well, you know, Bert Eichinger uh, came to me in uh, 92 and asked me if I wanted to make Fantastic Four. That was the biggest surprise in my life because it came out of nowhere. I can tell you the most surprising event for me, and this is also something that isn't in the documentary and it's kind of controversial. The biggest surprise I got in the last five years was Roger Corman walking out. I didn't know if you were going to get into this. Jeez, Mark, you were letting out the dirty laundry. Well, if I haven't been sued yet, I don't think I'm going to get sued tonight. (laughs) So start start over. Start over. We're holding the world premiere 
screening, other than the one at Comic-Con, the world premiere public screening of Fantastic Four, which would basically be just a handful of theaters, in at the Arrow in Santa Monica, California, which has a tendency to show lots of cool David Lynch, Easy Rider kind of movies, cult classics, and they tend to show them for like one night. And I got us a screening there um, about a month after Comic-Con and uh, the world premiere and everything. I got us a public screening at the Arrow, 400-seat theater. We had over 300 people in the audience, and Roger Corman and his wife, Julie, confirm about three days before they're coming. And, you know, of course, we're totally thrilled. Every the cast, We took pictures out in front of the Arrow with Roger and the whole cast and Oli. It was an amazing night. I look over 20 minutes into the film. The audience loves it. Everybody's having a great time. And I notice Roger and his group of people aren't there anymore. They left. And I get a phone call the next morning, and I've never told anybody but Marty this. I get a phone call the next morning from Roger's, or an email from Roger's personal secretary, personal assistant, asking for my phone number because Roger Corman would like to speak to me. Oh, so, I remember you relaying that information to me, and it was oh, you know yeah. whatever time it was in the afternoon or evening. It was the evening. So I, I, forward, and I was crapping bricks. I was like, <laughs> no, nah, no. Nah. I was like, bring it on, buddy, because you walked out of my screening. I was really upset. And I said, I, I emailed her my phone number and he never called. And I haven't spoken with him since. <laughs> okay, so well, here's our goal. We try and get Roger on the show and then go, why haven't you called Mark? He will never talk about this. He has talked about this movie since and he, he glosses away. I don't think he'd even admit the documentary exists. This guy is P.T. Barnum. Oh my gosh! What are your uh, theories, Mark? Did you ever, uh, you know, do you have public theories? What's that about? Why he walked out? Yeah. Um, I guess I can say this because it's in the documentary. Uh, Glenn Garland, the editor of the film and a sweet, sweet, amazing guy, told some stories which were one hundred percent true, and they're interspersed with footage of me, where we talk about the scenario and the setting for the making of Fantastic Four, which was Corman's Venice stage, part of which was was a condemned lumberyard. There was a sign on the back of the main door that said, this property is condemned. There were rats. There was a cat named Lucy who used to chase the rats. It was a horrible place. And so, but we loved it because we were making movies. I was 28 and I was in Hollywood and I was making a Fantastic Four movie and I was on Carnosaur and I got to meet actors and actresses. I was living the dream, man. But Mark, Mark was oh, hanging yeah. with the Rat Pack. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Hey, I was the I was the casting director on Bram Stoker's Burial of the Rats for <laughs> Corman. There's an inside joke. Um, so in the movie, about 12, 15 minutes in, Glenn says, oh, we had this cat that used to chase away the mice and the rats. And I'm talking about, yeah, we're shooting movies in a condemned lumber yard. And then Roger leaves. So. I don't I don't think it was indigestion. I don't think it was the calamari he had for dinner. 
I think Roger won an Oscar. It went to his head. And he is now, like a lot of old guys, fully concerned about his legacy, what people think of him. He doesn't want people focusing on all these movies in the 70s that, you know, were total exploitation, totally exploited, were totally racist, sexist, all these terrible movies. Um, He wants people to remember that he won an Oscar and he's a sweet old man. And now he's got a pandemic challenge going. Hey, I, I assigned that to my students in one of my production classes. Don't don't knock his coronavirus film festival. I've never met a guy who like nothing he says is the reason he says he's doing it. It's it's just. I let me. I want to tell a quick story here too, if you don't mind. Yeah. This is something that uh, that uh, my Roger story that I've never yeah. told. Yeah. And it was it was one of the most heartbreaking evenings of my life. We okay. had interviewed. We'd done all the principal photography. I was I was holed up in my little apartment uh, editing this thing for like eighteen months. And I was tweaking every frame to get it just perfect. And I had my Roger Corman interview where he tells the story about getting the option and Constantine and the whole kind of backstory that was the backbone of the narrative that we introduced in the first five minutes. And then I was searching YouTube because I had a, I just wanted to do some research. And I found a Roger Corman interview that he had done in, you know, 2004. And it was about the Fantastic Four. And I'm like, ooh, and I watch it. And it was word for word what he told us. It was the same story, word for word, inflection for inflection. Yeah. And it was heartbreaking because I thought I had this piece of Americana, this historical document that was about this. It might not be a lot, but, you know, I was a documentary filmmaker and I had this from Corman, one of my heroes. And then I saw this YouTube video is him against some stupid green screen lit badly saying my exact same words. Oh, I was devastated. You want me to break your heart even more right now? And I got another exclusive. All right, what? I'm, I'm so jaded. <laughs> 28 years in Hollywood and I should just move some, I should move to the forest. Um, Marty, I think I told you this way back, but I, it's not something I dwelled on because it was just, we got the interview we got from him. Getting him on camera yep. was a surprise. The story of how we got him on camera is another great juicy Hollywood secret. But I'm going to tell you something that we didn't cover in the documentary because again, it's not really germane to the telling of the story of Rogers Fantastic Four but it does get it does speak to the memory of a 90 year old man which I'm not criticizing I, I appreciate it but it, it illustrates what you just talked about he didn't sleep um, with my mother did he you're not gonna like ruin I can't, I can't speak to that <laughs> I can't speak to that I cannot deny or confirm his relationship with your mother but I will tell you something that I was a little disappointed in The day we went to his office, I was really good friends still with a couple people that still work there, one of whom was in the back where all the legal documents and contracts are still kept. So while we're waiting for Roger to interview him, I zip into the back to say hi to my old colleague who's still there 20 years later. And Roger comes in and asks her for the file on the Fantastic Four. He says hello to me, not recognizing me. (laughs) 
and I say hi without identifying myself because I realize he's asking for this and he has no idea I'm a, we're about to interview him and I'm producing the documentary he's about to be interviewed for. And he's back here grabbing the notes, grabbing the documents because, you know, he's 90. This film wasn't even a focus of his. He had Steve Rabner producing it. Roger was up in the Brentwood office the whole time. And so he's going over data before he interviews with you. And this is why if you were to go up online and watch a bunch of interviews with Roger, all the stuff he talks about, all the bullet points on not only Fantastic Four, but every movie he talks about, they're just about the same because it's all that marketing spin that Roger does, which is, it's delightful and it's great, but uh, sadly, you know, when we interviewed him, I didn't feel he gave us a single piece of behind-the-scenes knowledge. I don't think he gave us any info about where the bodies were buried or who knew what and when they knew it. I think he was already concerned about his legacy. He was certainly not going to come out and admit that he was up to anything kind of dark and shady that ended up putting this cast and this director uh, in a bad light. Right. I think I'm like Geraldo Rivera and I'm going to get this juicy piece of information from him because I'm so brilliant. And the guy's got speaking points in a folder in the back room and he's studying before he comes out. Oh, God. Yeah, My life is a lie. That's all he was ever <laughs> going to give anybody. Uh, that's all he would ever give. I Obviously, I think Roger knows more. But, uh, you know, you can't force him to tell you that. And we only had, what, 20 minutes, half an hour or so. Yeah, that was not a lengthy interview. And again, it was bullet points. It was Roger Corman spin. Yeah, Y'all are making me want to go and just like watch every movie of his that MST3K's done. <laughs> yeah. Just to make him mad somehow. Oh, that's funny. That's, that's hilarious. <laughs> I'm, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of his movies and I'm a big fan of the man, but I, I want to be that person who doesn't just put him up on a pedestal and pretend that, you know, the movies he made were uh, worthy of a, an Academy Award. Um, he made B-movies. He made movies for money. He was a very smart and shrewd businessman. He started a lot of careers, but he also paid people nothing and <laughs> never gave anybody a dime they didn't earn. Oli never got a penny over his initial fee. The cast of Fantastic Four was never given a a penny of residuals that they would have earned if the movie had come out. Roger didn't feel any guilt, any responsibility to just say, hey, in all my career, I've never not released a movie. So gosh, I think the cast and crew should get, you know, $5,000 each out of the million dollars I made on this film. Um, he was pretty full of himself. Actually, it's Oli's impression of Roger that yeah. is full of himself when he talks about, oh, they gave me a check for a million dollars. Oli, I got a check for a million dollars on my desk, so I just wanted to thank you. <laughs> Everybody at Corman impersonated him, even the women. I mean, we did it with love, but you'd walk down the aisle and Roger had this traditional nod. He didn't, he was a very shy man at times. He'd come into work, he'd walk the aisle and you could always gauge his mood, whether you got totally ignored, the Roger Corman nod or good morning. Uh, you, 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 if he was in a good mood, he'd actually speak. Um, typically, he just couldn't wait to get back to his office office and uh you know count his money 
Holy crap, Mark. <laughs> but I'm not bitter. <laughs> and yeah, that should be our show writing, title right there. And I am writing, writing about this. Oh, we should oh, talk about your book. Yeah, uh, in, in February, I released uh, on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, a bunch of places, The Doomed Journal. Oh. And Actually, uh, I am offering a special that I will announce right here, uh, and I'm going to put it up on social media. Um, I have somehow stumbled upon a bag of original Fantastic Four promotional pins from 1993. The big ones or the little ones? The little ones. But, but that's a big bag, though, dude. You can... They're cool. They're cool. I've got oh, about awesome. 30 of them. And I am going to, uh, I've got a big cartel page. It's the rebelpeddler.bigcartel.com. And I am going to give a free pin to anybody that buys my book, which, of course, I will sign up on my big cartel page only. I can't do it if you buy it on Amazon or anywhere else. But if you buy it on Big Cartel, you're buying it from me. I uh, put on some gloves, I autograph it, and I will put a pin from the original Fantastic Four, an authentic pin that I've held on to for 28 years as a free little promotion for the month of May at Wild Supplies Last. So everybody gets a really good deal on the book. How'd you keep those from Marvel when they came in to take everything, Mark? Shut up, Marty. Statute of limitations has expired. I'm pretty That's sure. Right. I, had, I had Dr. Doom's cloak until I sold it about a year ago. <laughs> Remember that. Remember read, watching y'all do that on, on social media. Yeah, it was a rough year. Now I'm going to have to get the book so I can get my pen. <laughs> the pen might be worth more than the book, but I'm not going to, you know, confirm that. Yeah, but, but there are the- more. I was going to say, if there's more stories like tonight in that book, then the book's just as valuable as the pen. Yes. Yes. <laughs> the, book, uh, the book tells more in-depth about my experience on Fantastic Four. The first small section of the book is my Fantastic Four journal, which, you know, really the documentary is everybody else's story. I'm in there, but we didn't obviously want to turn the documentary into the Mark Sykes story. So I tell some things in the book that didn't get, they didn't make the cut in the documentary for good reason. And then it is like 200-page diary of making the documentary, including all the stuff about Roger, all the stuff behind the scenes about the interviews. I don't hold back. I, I, You know, I'm not going to get sued because everything in the book is true. It's my take on it. Um, I talk about Marty and I uh, going down to Comic-Con and the nightmarish hoops Comic-Con put us through. They wouldn't even give us badges at first. They wanted to show our movie, not pay us, and not give us badges. Ugh. And it was only when we thought we had Roger to come as a guest. That's right. They gave us badges, and then Roger backed out. But yeah, we never told him. <laughs> I said, the hell with them. They weren't even going to let us into the Comic-Con while they were showing our movie they weren't paying us for. Oh, but we wanted yeah, that... to air at Comic-Con so bad that we were willing to bend over for that. And then we managed to trick them into giving us badges in the final analysis. I tell that whole story. Wow. Oh, you know what I just remembered I still have, Mark, is um, Lloyd Kaufman introduced the movie that night at San Diego. And I still have that, I think. 
I must have backed that up somewhere. We should oh, release sure. that somewhere. Yeah, you got Lloyd doing that. Uh, we, we there's a lot of stuff. Um, you know, we shot trailers to raise money. We have a Indiegogo video. There's a lot of stuff we shot that we either didn't use or just didn't prove fruitful at the time. Yeah. Um, several versions of the trailer, etc. So. Yeah, my book just basically, I was keeping a journal anyway. I wanted to remember everything. And then I finally got to the point where this has been a psychotic enough ride where if anybody ever wants to produce or direct a documentary, this book is a freaking blueprint uh, to some degree of what not to do. Yeah, but that's not entirely fair either because no, 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 we, we did a, you did a lot. We did a lot. We had some great ideas. We successfully finished the documentary. You directed a solid documentary. I'm just saying it was a learning curve. You know, we we were making mistakes and we learn. We make mistakes and we learn. If somebody was making a documentary, like let's say somebody wanted to do a documentary on the Captain America movie or the Doctor Strange movie, our this book with the background of any mistakes we made, any time we wasted a lot of time. Oh my god, we had our time wasted by a lot of people. Um, It's a blue blueprint and a path of not wasting time. God, you know, we really, I really talk about what this movie actually cost to make, which was scary little and how we really paid very little out of pocket. We did, we were very good producers in that sense. We made other people pay for this movie. Um, to the point, even when like our Sizzler lunches, you know, we budgeted, we budgeted food, <laughs> our DP and our studio and our Sizzler lunches. Yeah, but those are legitimate expenses. I mean, it oh, wasn't sure. Yeah. We didn't. No. That's just for lunches unless it was during production. No, that's what I mean. I'm just saying the money that we raised, we were smart and that we didn't spend any of our own money. Yes. Well, yeah. And we were selling autographed Fantastic Four posters. I don't know where those came from. And um, we had autographed Fantastic Four posters that the cast autographed. And we were selling those to pay for gas. I think we rented a car to go to Comic-Con. Yeah, yeah. Um, Craft service for when we were shooting the movie. Um, Craft service when we screened the movie. You know, just little expenses the whole way. But I mean, I slept um, on your couch, you know, for th- two weeks, three weeks. I, you know, we didn't, uh, we didn't live it up. Twice. Yeah, yeah. No, you, you slept on the couch two or three times and that was fine. But no, we didn't live it up. But we also, I don't think, other than incidental stuff, we didn't put our money into this film. Time and work, but not money. Right. Actually, you guys mentioned something that just kind of made me... I, I want to know if you guys, if there was any on the set, was it was there any comparison to the 1990 Captain America movie that, well, if I guess it was intended for theaters. Now, I don't know if it had a small release, but I think ultimately it ended up on video. Yeah, we, we, def- any- we yeah, definitely reference it. Yeah, we definitely reference it. And it's, a you know, it's one of those kind of touchstones that we look at when we chart Marvel's development into the live yeah. action world. Yeah. And, right. you know, Captain America, this the Nicholas Hammond Spider-Man stuff and the Bill Bixby Hulk stuff we talk about. And then the, the Hulk movies with Thor and uh, oh. uh, you know, Daredevil. Remember those with uh, John yeah. Rise Davies as the Kingpin. And, and, uh, and then, and right, Sta- exactly. And we get Stan Lee as the jury foreman. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's so terrific. And yeah, we do talk about that Captain America movie, which I too have an, <clears throat> an affection for, Matt Salinger. Oh, yeah. You know, uh, uh, that, I, I remember getting the, the screener for that when I worked at a video store, <clears throat> and I'm like, "Oh my god!" See, I might have to go back and rewatch that. I remember, I remember getting it, and I'm watching it at night. 
I don't know. Like, it, it just didn't sit well with me either way. Fantastic did. But I'm willing to go back and, you know, maybe watching it, you no, know, with you no know, eyes that are 30 years older. I don't know. Maybe I'll have a different, <laughs> have a different, uh, take on it. the but cool I, thing I was, is albert what you should do you is um you should make a documentary in that albert Pugh, the director is like wicked active on facebook you can like talk to him very yeah. easily and go talk to him and make a captain america documentary man <laughs> read mark's book and then uh, and then do that because that that would be a cool story i'm sure jd salinger's son is captain america that's awesome crazier things have happened i mean there is a huge following out there um for stuff like this it's the fan Fans loved it. You know, we took very little heat for Fantastic Four from fans, uh, from Doomed. Um, I wish more people would do this because I really think every one of these deserves to have its own story told. Um, I've been a, I've been interviewed by um, a writer who was doing a book on Marvel before it became sort of the Marvel Universe, all the early stuff. So he interviewed me about Fantastic Four, and I said, uh, William, why aren't you doing a book on Fantastic Four. This is a great story that deserves its own book. And that book now exists because he was like, yeah, yeah, not just a chapter, right? Yeah. And he interviewed absolutely everybody, including Nevius. It's called Forsaken, F-O-U-R, Saken. Uh, excuse me, Mark. Mark, yeah. excuse me. Uh, who did he interview? <laughs> Every- he everybody? He said everybody? Who was involved in Fantastic Four? All right, all right. And what I, do you I mean? He might have talked to me. I might have had some insight i whatever it's fine it's fine but but he said i I wrote the forward to the book and he credits me with talking him into writing the book about fantastic four you couldn't talk up your director for an interview you didn't direct fantastic four you nitwit (laughs) what would you have talked about You know, my insight into the minds of the actors based on my in-depth interviews. Actors forgot. (laughs) He got Craig Nevius. He got the worst brothers. He got like eight or nine people who at the time, because of our documentary, I think kind of crawled out from under rocks. We couldn't get them for the documentary. Right, right. William got them for the book. I mean, I bought the book. Uh, I didn't even, I'm the, I'm the forward and I didn't even ask for a free copy. I bought the book on Amazon because I think sort of with Doom Journal, well, even forget the Doom Journal for a second, just Doomed and William's book as sort of a companion piece. There you have the complete story. He got Corman to interview and pretty much hit the same bullet points, but, mm. you know, he did interview a bunch of people we didn't get and so between the two items that it's a great um it's a great companion it's sort of like bookends for the story of fantastic four he would have interviewed you if you wanted him to (laughs) sorry it's fine so where can people find you guys online we know the film's available on amazon prime at the moment go watch it it's worth it where can they find you guys online well, we I think Facebook is where both of us are probably most active in terms of social yeah. media. So uh, Marty Langford uh, and Mark Sykes both on Facebook, and we have a doomed, uh, you know, the Untold Story of Roger Corman's Fantastic Four uh, fan page, uh, which is fairly active. Um, we sell some stuff through our uh, store in terms of like some merchandise, behind the scenes stuff, posters. 
uh, commentary tracks, that FF thing we mentioned earlier. Um, and so I, I want I want to add one thing to that, Marty. Marty and I are like a hundred percent responsive. Uh, as long as somebody isn't up there just to be mean or rude, anyone that comes up on that Facebook page in the last five years who has a question, who wants to know anything at all, we've been completely transparent, I believe, and totally open to answer fan questions, talk about any anything that they think slipped through the cracks or more information. Well, uh, after this after this interview, Mark, uh, it's yeah. clear that anything goes. So if anybody asks me those <laughs> questions that I may have been afraid to answer before, I'll just I'll think, well, Mark is he's talking about everything. I'm in. <laughs> yeah, I mean, nobody was murdered or anything. So I don't think <laughs> I don't think anyone's sitting at home going, oh, no, you know, Rebecca Staub isn't sitting at home going, oh, no, Mark going to talk about my house. Uh, <laughs> you, you know, it, it's not like we have dirty secrets on anybody, but there was, you know, Corman was a, a you know, a bit of a prima donna and <laughs> wouldn't talk to us. And, you know, there were just things that went on and there was drama back during the shooting of the film and there's drama during the shooting of any film. So that's fine. Uh, well, thank you guys for, for joining us this week. Hang on the line when we wrap this up because yeah. I think we got a few more questions for you or off the record Uh, so until next time uh thursday if you would please all wrapped up here sir will there be anything else no just time to go dark all wrapped up here sir will there be anything else thursday's glitching Yes, yes, everyone. Doom, 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 and doom. doom.